Morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome. I'm Will. Fabulous to have you here. And we're working through John's Gospel, um, seeking to really get back to the real Jesus. And some of this stuff is pretty raw, which is how John wrote it, and how I would dare to say Jesus really was. So welcome to the real Jesus. Today's reading is John 8, 12 to 59, and it's on page 894. Page 894, John 8, verses 12 to 59. Page 894, John 8, beginning at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to, the, to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, and, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Told you it was raw. Let's pray for God's help as we look at it. <coughs> Father God, this passage is stressful. And, and the conflict and the anger and the accusations and counter-accusations flying around are, are deeply uncomfortable. And Father, we don't want to skimp on any bits of your word that have rough edges. Lord, we trust you and we're humble enough to know that um, we need your word and we submit to it. So, Lord, these verses here in front of us right now, teach us through them. Lord, there'll be some in this room we trust in your providence who need to hear this this morning and would insights from this be lovingly fed into all of our hearts by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, my dad used to test me with riddles sometimes. I wonder if you like riddles. Well, one of them was this. You may have heard it before. Imagine you're in a prison cell and there are two doors. And one of the doors is the door to freedom. And behind the other door is a hangman. It's the door to death. And you don't know which is which. And you have to pick one of them. And in front of each door is a guard. And one guard always tells the truth. The other guard always lies. And again, you don't know which is which. And you have to choose one of the doors, and you're allowed to ask one question of one of the guards, but you don't know which is which. What do you ask? 
Does anyone know this? Anyone heard of this before? No, you all were spared this kind of stuff in your childhoods. I'm a bit jealous. The answer is, you ask either guard, doesn't matter which one, what would the other guard say? And then whatever the answer is to what the other guard would say, you do the opposite. Because think about it, if the guard you happen to ask happens to be the truth-telling guard, he will tell you the door that the lying guard would have told you, so you do the opposites, you're safe. But equally, if the guard you happen to ask happens to be the lying guard, he would tell you the opposite door to the one the truth-telling guard would have told you, so you do the opposite to what he says. So either way, you get out. Like it? I, I love how stuff like that works, and I'm not going to go into it now. It's quite pleasing. It's to do with the fact that two negatives cancel each other out. Um, this morning we're looking at Jesus, the true teacher, in contrast to the falsehood-loving, lying Jewish leaders. And the stakes of it aren't just like a hangman and freedom, but eternal life and eternal death. And who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to trust? Because to this day we're bombarded by different voices, aren't we? Loads of different voices constantly assailing our ears. And so when it comes to a big decision in life, your friends might be telling you one thing, your parents might be telling you something else, your, your colleagues might be telling you something else, your instincts might be telling you something else. The, the values and the messages you're being fed by TV and social media and our culture in general might be telling you something else. And who are you going to listen to? And this morning we're now going to hand over to Jesus to tell us why to listen to him. Because in these verses, he defends his own teaching against his attackers. So two basic points in today's message. Here's the first. Their attack on Jesus' authority. Okay? Their attack on Jesus' authority. I'm going to be selective. It's a long passage. Um, we can't cover every verse. But Jesus' focus on his authority. This point is really verses 12 to 30, if you'll notes. Let's just pull out a few things. Verse 12. <clears throat> John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Very famous words. We just sang them. They sound powerful and beautiful, and they are. What exactly do they mean? Well, this is the second of seven I am sayings that John has spaced throughout his gospel. And each time Jesus says, I am, dot, 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 that is a big claim to divinity. And it's a claim to be God himself. And we saw that just at the end of the reading. So um, page 895, look on down to John 8, 15, uh, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In that culture, if you commit blasphemy, in other words, claim to be divine, punishment is stoning. Look at the very next verse. So they picked up stones. So whenever Jesus says, I am, dot, 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 claim to divinity, big, um, seven big famous I am sayings. This is the second of those seven. And um, here he's saying, I am the light of the world. <laughs> and, and the reason this is a claim to divinity is that right back towards the beginning of the Old Testament, God famously reveals his personal name. Like God has a name. I have a name. I'm Will. That's James. That's Joey. God has a name. And God's name is, you guessed it, in Exodus 3, I am. Yahweh. And here's Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Now the context here in John is that we are at the climax 
of one of the greatest festivals in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. And it was said that whoever had not experienced the Feast of Tabernacles had not experienced happiness. An amazing festival. Um, part of the symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles was water, life-giving water. We looked at how Jesus fulfilled the, the, the feast in that way. He is the, the living water last week. Another big part of the symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles was light. And, and the feast would go on for a whole week. And at the end of the very first day of the feast, as the evening was drawing in, the crowds would gather in the temples, uh, in the temple, and the priests would light four massive golden lamps amidst great celebration and rejoicing. And lots of other lights would be lit as well. It must have looked amazing. And uh, for the rest of that week, throughout the feast, every night, there would be music and singing and dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. And the light beaming out of the temple would illuminate the whole city. Can you imagine that? Well, as we saw last week, we're now on the final climactic day of that week, that feast. And as the feast ends, and as the lights are, are finally extinguished for the last time until next year, that is the context in which Jesus cries out, I'm the light of the world. And maybe it was even... You know, as darkness was falling, as dusk was, was coming over Jerusalem at the end of the week of light, that Jesus cried out, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So what exactly does that mean? Well, to think about it from the darkness point of view, throughout the Bible, darkness often stands for things like death and evil and ignorance and fear and uncertainty and anxiety and God's judgment. And so in saying, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, Jesus is effectively saying, whoever walks with me will, will, will never experience those things. They'll be free from them. Or to think about it from the point of view of light, uh, light is an incredibly rich symbol throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. Um, would have brought memories to the listening crowds of um, when the, the, the pillars of cloud and fire were provided by God to, to lead his people through the desert when he delivered them out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Or in Psalm 27.1, David says, The Lord is my light, and the context there is one of deliverance. Or in Psalm 119.130, uh, the, the psalmist says, The unfolding of your words gives light. The context there is one of revelation. And I could go on and on, but in summary, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's effectively saying, I am your guidance. I am your deliverance. I am your revelation. He's saying, I'm your life. And in fact, that's exactly what he does go on to say. So just have a look at the end of verse 12 again. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, eternal life. Not God's judgment after this world because of our sin but life forever after this world because of God's forgiveness of our sin through Jesus' death to pay for it. All of which causes really big, really angry pushback from his listeners who have already been trying to have him arrested and killed. So look at verse 13, John 8, 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And then we get this point, Jesus defending his authority, defending his teaching. And in particular, Jesus points to four things. Number one, his mission. Verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For, 
Here's his defense, here's the reason. I know where I come from and where I am going. In other words, he's saying that I know my identity is divine and my destination is the cross. And number two, he points to his father's unity with him. Verse 16, he says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For, here's his defense, here's his reasoning, it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And number three, he points to his divinity. Verse 23, he said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. There's that very, very stark dualism that is so very John. And then finally, four, he points in his defense of his authority and his truth to his impending sacrificial loving death that he's choosing to go to at their hands. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, Son of Man is an Old Testament um, title that it w was for a figure of majestic authority and, and divinity. And Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. And, and when you've lifted up the Son of Man, classic euphemism in John for the cross, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. So this is the famous Italian uh, astronomer, physicist, Galileo Galilei, 1564 to 1642. Um, for centuries, people were convinced that Aristotle was right when he said that the heavier an object is, the faster it falls to the earth. After all, he was the greatest thinker of all time. How could he possibly be wrong? Now anyone, of course, in the nearly 2,000 years between Aristotle and Galileo could have taken two objects, one heavier, one lighter, dropped them from a great height and, and seen. But it wasn't until nearly 2,000 years after Aristotle's death that in 1589, Galileo summoned the greatest, some of the greatest professors of his age to the base of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And he went to the top, and he leant over the edge, and he dropped a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight at the same time. And sure enough, because all you guys are geniuses, you'll know what happened, they hit the ground at the same time. And yet, all of these famous learned professors who were stuck in their ways and arrogant and proud of their knowledge denied their eyesight and refused to admit that Aristotle could possibly be wrong. Jesus has been demonstrating his authority again and again and again and again in the last eight chapters with multiple signs, miracles, well attested. He lays out the logic for it here. The Jewish leaders just cannot accept it. And as they attack Jesus' authority and teaching without going into all the verses, Jesus shows them to be ignorant of his mission, verse 14, despite everything he's been doing and saying. He shows them to be judging merely by human standards, by surface appearances, verse 15. He, he exposes them for being ignorant of who he is, again, despite eight chapters worth of him showing who he is and teaching who he is and demonstrating it by miracles, and therefore ignorant of who God the Father is, verse 19. And so despite all of their vicious opposition and the they launch at him. Jesus' authority and the message of his message of life really stands up. And the main point of this, here's the application of this, this first of only two points this morning. Here's the, the outbox. The, 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 the take home for us from all of this is very similar to what we saw last week. And it's to ask us, are we going to trust and follow Jesus unlike the Jewish leaders?
And will we persevere and keep trusting him and keep following him and keep listening to his word despite the inevitable opposition it'll bring us, despite the fact it'll mean us going against the flow, just like it did for him. And I really get that application from verse 31. So uh, halfway down the right-hand column, page 894, have a look at verse 31. So, you know, here's the, the point of all of this. We've looked at verses 12 to 30. Final verse, so. Here's the outbox. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide, continue in, keep going in, persevere with my word, you're truly my disciples. Now, as the story develops, as we'll see in a few minutes, um, they actually weren't really his disciples. That Their belief turns out to have been false. But true disciples keep going with Jesus, even with the kind of opposition we've seen. It's called perseverance of the saints. Um, you see it all throughout the Bible. That's the mark of authenticity. Are you still a Christian today? If you want to know whether you're already saved tomorrow, wake up tomorrow morning and ask yourself, am I still going with Jesus today and today and today and today, all the way until you're home? Just abiding, persevering, keeping going. Because that opposition wasn't just for Jesus. It's for us too, if we're being faithful. And in a few chapters' time in John's Gospel, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. We're not greater than Jesus. It happened to him. How much more should we expect it to happen to us? And so just like the Jewish leaders were towards Jesus then, so we to this day, if we follow him, will also be around people who are ignorant of his mission. All the same three things Jesus exposed about him, who are ignorant of his mission, who judge merely by human appearances, you know, surface standards, miracles couldn't possibly happen, I'll just be an unthinking, intellectually dishonest atheist, um, because I just kind of discount the possibility of that. And, and thirdly, who are ignorant of who Jesus is, and therefore of who the Father is. And, and not ignorant in a kind of objective, intellectually uh, hungry, open-minded, curious way that can seem like that on the surface, but rather in the same hostile, entrenched, dogmatic, uh, evidence-denying way that John pictures for us here. We should expect to encounter those people if we're serious about sticking with Jesus. And so will we keep going? Now this um, is a guy called Byron Janus. A bit of a hero of mine, famous American concert pianist, still alive today actually, uh, aged 91. In 1973, he was at the height of his career success, glittering career. Um, he'd been invited multiple times to perform for the presidents and, and crowds at the White House. Um, he was well known for his recitals. He made landmark recordings of Mozart, Rachmaninoff, Liszt, uh, Prokofiev. And he was famous for the incredible grace and speed of his fingers. There, the world was at his feet. Made me look like I've got bananas for fingers. And then one day, he woke up and he felt this strange uh, stiffness in his wrists that had never been there before. And it didn't go away and he went to the doctor and tests were done and the diagnosis eventually came back. Severe early onset arthritis. His hands were destined to become wooden and crippled. And within a short time the arthritis spread um, through his hands to his fingers. The joints of nine of his fingers eventually became fused. But here's why I love him. He, he kept this secret from everyone except his wife and two close friends, and he decided not just to capitulate. He decided to fight back. He spent hours adapting his technique to cope 
and he adapted his playing style to avoid his weaknesses <coughs> and focus on his strengths. <coughs> Excuse me, getting emotional, not really. Um, he started a big regime of, of medication and acupuncture and ultrasound and even hypnosis to cope with the pain. Um, he got his wife trained in how to give these special therapeutic massages to loosen his joints. And so he was able to continue his career. And in fact, he maintained a full concert schedule for another 12 years without anyone suspecting. And finally, he, he told the world the truth at a White House concert in, 18, in 1985. And here's what he said when he revealed the truth about the last 12 years. He said, I may have arthritis, but it doesn't have me. I may have arthritis, but it doesn't have me. Now, following Jesus, if we're doing it faithfully, will be an uphill battle. It'll, it'll involve opposition, like Jesus faced. There's every reason to give up and go with the flow and not cause ourselves extra pain by standing up for Jesus and keeping going. We don't have to stand up for Jesus. You don't have to follow him. No one does. It's a choice. But if we do want to, we just need to be prepared for pushback and persecution and things like spiritual arthritis to, to attack. But to misquote Byron Janice, we may have persecution, it doesn't have to have us. It doesn't have to have us. And it may hurt, we, we can just keep playing. And dogged faithfulness to Jesus, no matter what the cost, is more beautiful than all the piano concertos in the world and will bring more glory and more rewards in heaven than all the applause of all the crowds in the world. So that's the first thing, their attack on Jesus' authority. Here's the second and final heading, the truth about their identity. And here's where things got really tasty in the passage, as you probably picked up in the reading. Um, so just as a heads up, this is pretty shocking. It's so, so, so un-PC. Uh, Jesus is saying it, I'm just going to pass it on, hope that's okay. Uh, now we're looking at verses 31 to 59. And again, I'm going to have to be selective and just pull a few things out, but let's start from verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, or so it appeared, if you abide in my word, if you keep going, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's saying free from your helpless enslavement to sin. Free from God's righteous judgment for that sin. Free. And you would think their response would be, Wow! Amazing! Thank you, Jesus! Tell us more! Whereas, in fact, the reaction is one of pride and anger. Verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. Can you hear the pride in their voices? We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus explains, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. In other words, a person entrapped in sin can't remain with God, not in God's family. But the Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free to be with God forever. Free from your sin forever. And then Jesus gradually starts to edge in the following verses towards a crashing, like lowering the boom. He edges towards the great reveal. Verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, biologically at least. 
Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do not, uh, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they're like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? We just agreed. You just said it yourself. Abraham's our father, right? Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus edging closer to the big reveal. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, as in really his children, his children spiritually, you would be doing the works Abraham did, as in trusting and following God's word. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God, and done multiple miracles to back it up. And again, Jesus edges closer, verse 41, you're doing the works your father did. And again, they're like, whoa, what are you getting at? Who are you saying our father is? Reading on in verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I come from God and I am here. And then Jesus develops the argument a bit further before coming down to the bottom line about their identity. Here's the great reveal, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. And then in verse 47, we get another very classic Johnism, putting something the exact opposite way around to the way you would assume, you wait, the way you and I might have put it. Look at verse 47. And I wonder if you felt the, the jar, the surprise of this in the reading. Verse 47, he says, Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason you don't hear them is that you are not of God. Now, you'd think it would say, the reason you're not of God is that you don't hear them. That's the way around it should be, right? The reason you're not of God is that you don't hear his words. But the scary truth is, rejecting Jesus' words isn't the cause of their problem. It's the symptom of their problem. The reason they don't hear them is for the prior truth that they are just not of God. And that's their identity. And I'll summarize all this in a second. We'll wrap it up. Just before I do, a few more things to pick out about their identity that Jesus exposes in verses 48 to 59. Uh, they're racist, verse 48. They're using Samaritan as an insult because they despised and looked down on Samaritans as half-castes. Uh, number two, they're ready to resort to the most absurdly far-fetched accusations against Jesus, calling him demonic in verses 48 and 52. Remember, this is a guy who's been serving and healing and, and providing for all sorts of people so far, teaching about God's love, teaching about the truth that he'll soon be giving his life to save his people. They're calling him demonic. Um, number three, they flatly deny his divinity despite blindingly clear and abundant evidence. And four, they physically try and kill him there and then in verse 59. So although you might have just, if you only read up to verse 31, and then read in verse 31 about them being the Jews who had believed in him, you think, hey, these are good guys. These are, these, these are people we need to like support and be like. They're great, they believe in Jesus. And then Jesus digs a little bit beneath the surface and reveals their identity, and it's really not that pretty. Okay, so what for us? So many people in our society, in our culture, can seem on the surface like good guys. Especially in the UK, where everyone is so understated, Brits at least, and, and polite, and don't like to push their personal real views, um, if there's going to be any social awkwardness. Um, 
we mustn't be naive. The fundamental identity of anyone who doesn't wholeheartedly devote themselves to Jesus is really, really not pretty. I said this was going to be un-PC. Um, now, this isn't to say that Christians are in any way better than non-Christians. I know some pretty objectionable Christians. Maybe you do too. There are some non-Christians around the place who I just love and, and kind of look up to and love to be around. And I admire. This isn't a point about that. This is a point about people's fundamental spiritual identity. And so John's Gospel often highlights something that we've seen very clearly today that theologians call the antithesis. And uh, we've seen it in this passage. Jesus has exposed it in his listeners. The antithesis is the uncomfortable truth that all of humanity falls into one of only two categories and that between those categories there is a literally infinite, unbridgeable chasm. So, just from this passage alone, here's the antithesis. Uh, everyone walks either in darkness or has the light of life, verse 12. Not like a spectrum. You can't walk in, in dusk. Um, everyone will either die in their sins, terrifying phrase, or else believe in Jesus, 24. Um, everyone is either enslaved to their sin or set free from their sin, 34 to 36. Everyone either loves Jesus or doesn't, verse 42. You can't kind of like him. If you only like him, then you hate him, because the choice is love him or not love him. Uh, everyone either understands Jesus. And this isn't even just a, a John's Gospel thing. And this is all throughout the Bible. Philippians 3, one of many examples, Paul describes nice, normal, non-Christians as enemies of the cross. And these are deep waters. And if I could just pull out two take-home implications before we wrap up as we finish. The first would be this. We mustn't be naive. Like, interfaith compromise is a fatal dead end. As Jesus himself will say in a few chapters' time, chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's, it's Jesus or bust. That, that's not you know, that's why there'll never be an interfaith service at Redeemer. <laughs> Much as we want to love, I'll get on to that in a second, love those who aren't following Jesus. So, all the different paths don't meet at the top of the mountain. If you've ever heard that analogy before about different religions, all eventually lead to God just by different routes. Um, all the paths on the mountain lead to death, except for one. And, and that is so awkward to hold on to in our culture that is so inescapable from this chapter and when confronted by people rejecting him Jesus doesn't say oh no problem uh, you have your faith and I have mine sure we have lots in common um, instead he exposes the antithesis in a fairly spectacular way so that's the first thing second and final thing would be we therefore need to love passionately people who don't yet follow Jesus the fact they're God's enemies doesn't mean we fight them. 
I mean, it's the exact opposite. It means we reach out to them and welcome them and serve them and have compassion for them and witness to them. Because no matter how uh, pleasant or sincere or apparently you know, good guys they are, how many good things they've done, even how religious they are, people in this passage are highly zealous for God, or so they imagined, unless they have repented of their defiant rebellion against Jesus by withholding their life from him, they're in horrific position. They're his enemies. They're hurtling towards an unthinkable eternity. And, and they'll be judged as Jesus gives us a sneak preview of in these verses. This is like a little sneak preview for us of what it will be like for all Jesus' enemies in the end. And we should therefore view them as such. And that means loving them and seek to reach out to them and witness to them. Let's pray. <laughs> Loving Father, this chapter is hard to look at and there's a lot of vitriol. But Father, we, we want to humble ourselves under your word, not be like those Jews who seem like they followed you but, but then showed that they didn't really by rejecting your word. Help us to trust in Jesus' identity and his authority and his teaching. And help us not to be naive about those who don't. Lord, they're not fine. They're, they're in terrible, terrible danger. They're heading for horrific judgment, as we see in Jesus' reaction to them in this chapter. And help us to love them and reach out to them and witness. And please, would many of them come to our uh, carols by candlelight on the evening of December the 15th. And Lord, please help us to be praying for them and befriending them and serving them. And help us to have that urgency as we see the, the horror of the position they're in from this chapter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>